Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. In just a few moments, we will read from the words of our Savior. I'm sure I know the answer to this question, but I raise it just to get your minds thinking. Have you ever gone into a challenging situation somewhat ill-prepared and then coming out on the other side of that saying, man, I wish I had prepared myself for this. I, I needed courage and I wasn't anticipating it and I didn't pray for it and I didn't seem to have it. I needed wisdom. I didn't anticipate it, pray for it, have it. I needed patience and I didn't bolster myself and say, hey, when you go in here, be patient. And I blew it. I know that honesty requires you to join me in saying yes, many, many, many Times. Well, this morning I want us to think together about when we most need humility. We have come this morning to our last, or our second to the last question. It is a when question. We considered uh, what humility is and where it comes from and how important it is and who are some helpful examples and This morning, I want you to think together with me about when we most need humility. And I'm going to submit to you seven times. There are many, many more. It was difficult to distill the occasions to only seven. One of the things that I've been so blessed in reading is Richard Baxter's treatment of humility, the old Puritan. In fact, I think it would be Delightful if uh, some small groups emerged just spontaneously and said, let's go through uh, Baxter's work. It's voluminous. That is, there's a whole lot of it. There's a big volume of things he has to say. He has no less than 24 directives as to how to kill pride and strengthen humility. And under every directive, he'll have 10 or 12 or 25 other things to say. Very rich wonderfully rich. But I'm only going to suggest seven special times when we need the wisdom of God. Number one, whenever we are being confronted with the truth of God's Word about our sinfulness and lostness before God and our desperate need of Christ, that's the first and foremost place where we need humility. This is obviously a word of advice to the unconverted. If you heard how I put that, let me say it again. The most important time we could ever in our entire lives need humility is when ever we are being confronted with the truth of God's Word about our sinfulness and lostness before God and our desperate need of Christ. In other words, when the Gospel comes to us, and the Gospel, I'm using it now in more of the broader sense, the word really means good news, but to properly preach the Gospel, we have to set forth the bad news. And when the bad news of our true condition before God is being brought to our minds and our attentions, we desperately need to be humble. Because if we're not, we will reject the good news. We won't see the need for the good news. So this is especially true for the unconverted. Humility is not only a vital grace after we get saved. It is absolutely essential in order to be saved. God Himself cannot save us until we are first humbled. Therefore, He first humbles us in the salvation experience. No human being has ever savingly come to Christ without first 
having been humbled. Now, I'm speaking absolutistically. I mean, there are no exceptions. No one has ever been saved who wasn't first humbled. It's impossible to be saved unless you are first humbled. And that's why I directed you to Matthew 18. Notice what was happening in the first of this chapter. Matthew tells us at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What a grievous question that must have been to our Savior. They were preoccupied with greatness. And we are told in Luke chapter 9 that they were actually arguing about this on the way. In fact, if I were to turn you to that account, you would find that Jesus asked them a very convicting question later that evening. He said, uh, what were you fellows talking about today? Um, I could hear you talking. What, what were you talking about? And he knew what they were talking about. And they admitted it to him. And he knew that he needed to teach them something about humility. So that's the wrong question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, how did Jesus respond to it? Verse 2, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn, some translations say be converted, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's talk about what you really need to understand, says Jesus. It's not about who's the greatest in it. It's about how you get in the kingdom. And you need to understand, my disciples, says Jesus. You can't even enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become like a child. Well, with regard to what? I thought children were born with sinful human natures. They are. But notice his answer. Verse 4. Whoever humbles, sounds like our topic, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now again, Jesus is not undoing for us the doctrine of original sin. He's not teaching us that children aren't sinful. What he's helping us understand, and surely we can appreciate this, is that Children tend, before they get older, to be more meek, more open, more dependent than they are when they're older. A little child just has to implicitly trust mom and dad. And they have to depend upon mom and dad. In that sense, there is a virtue in childlikeness that portrays an attitude, a demeanor, a posture that should characterize us in our Christian lives. One of humble dependence upon others. And Jesus is teaching so clearly that we cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. We cannot be saved. We cannot experience conversion. We cannot find forgiveness of sins unless we are humbled. We have to become humble. And it is true that God is the one who makes us humble. But it is also true that God commands us to be humble. And we are to humble ourselves. And so I submit to you that this is the first and foremost time when we need humility. It is when we're being confronted with the truth of God's Word about our sinfulness and our lostness, our desperate need of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the very familiar parable, and I won't turn you to it, I'm just going to quote the words of our Savior as He concluded this parable. We are reminded again that it is essential to salvation, humility. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember how the Pharisee stood up with pride and in a pompous Spirit uh, recited to God all of his credentials. And then we are told that the tax collector would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, standing afar off, beat upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, 
the sinner. And then Jesus concludes the parable with this application. I tell you, this man, this humble tax collector, went down to his house justified. And we can go down to our houses justified too if we see our sinful, horrible, wicked, lost condition before God and cry out to Him for mercy through propitiation. Actually, that's what the Word actually says. Be propitious toward me. And when we understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross to propitiate the wrath of God for sinners, then we look to Him and we call upon Him out of broken, humble hearts. And so Jesus said, that's who gets saved. That's who went home saved, not the Pharisee. And then He gives us this wonderful statement, which in a sense is the theme for this whole series of sermons. He says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You can't get saved without humility. And that's why God gives us his law, so that, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3, every mouth may be stopped. We have to just shut up and say in our hearts, I'm guilty. I have nothing to plead. I have nothing to commend myself to God. And in being brought to that place, we start enjoying the blessedness that Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount when He said, I'll tell you who's really blessed. The poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'll tell you who's really blessed. Those who mourn over their sinfulness. For they shall be comforted. I'll tell you who's really blessed. The meek, they're going to inherit the earth. So that's the first time that we must be humble when we are confronted with the Word of God about our true condition. And so the Christian life begins with humility and it is deeply infused into our very souls at the outset of our salvation. And it becomes a what I'm going to call divine implant a divine implant that continues throughout the entirety of our Christian lives. There is no salvation for the proud. Number two, when do I need humility the most? Whenever we are being faithfully admonished, exhorted, or rebuked because of sin or even character deficiency in our lives. And that's true whether that rebuke is public or private, whether that rebuke comes through preaching or through a dear, dear brother or sister or a mom and dad coming to us one on one. Now, what is more challenging, dear people, to our pride than someone pointing out sin or deficiency in our lives? How do you do with that? How do you deal with that? Is that you're pretty good at that? Does, does that have any effect on you? Does that stir anything up in you? Or is it just, oh, I love it. It's great. It helps me. I enjoy it. In fact, I ask people, would you help me with this? Would you, sh- would you show me some sins in my life so I can... Well, it'd be great if we could say that. What can get our blood boiling quicker than someone admonishing us about sin or even pointing out a character deficiency? What can cause an argument quicker than that? What can make us mad and angry quicker than that? What causes us to start talking loud more quickly than that? What makes us want to say, well, who do you think you are more quickly than that? What makes us want to point out other people's sins and faults quicker than that? You're talking to me about this? Well, what about such and such in your life? It doesn't take long between our ears hearing what they are saying to us about our sin and our mouths responding and saying, oh, yeah, then what about... But, dear people, this is exactly the moment when we need most to be ruled by humility. Whenever we are being faithfully admonished or exhorted. And this is something that the psalmist apparently was able to to manifest when he was 
exhorted. Would you turn with me to Psalm 141? And we are going to be looking at a number of passages this morning because of the nature of this. This is a bit topical. But I'm not just using proof text carelessly. You, you see if, in fact, this isn't proving the points that I'm trying to make. Psalm 141. Notice verse 5. This is an invitation. This isn't him saying, well, God has given me grace and I, I find that on occasions I'm able to do the right thing. No, he's inviting it. Listen, he says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. If he's a righteous man, it is. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. This is what I need. This is what I want. David was an Old Testament saint. Should we be less godly? Is there less grace for New Covenant Christians than David enjoyed? Why don't we pray over that text? Oh God, bring me to the place where I can actually invite this and say, let it happen. It's good for my soul. Just go over to Proverbs for a moment. No, let's not. I'm going to save time. I'm just going to tell you, you know Proverbs 9.8. It's where it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know that. We don't have to turn there. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. We need to be wounded by our friends. There are times that God calls our friends to wound us. There was a time in the life of Peter when the Apostle Paul was called by God to wound Peter. And he wound him, wounded him publicly. I'm going to read to you the words of, of the Apostle Paul. He says, But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all. And then comes the rebuke and the admonition. How did Peter receive that? I'm sure being a human being, there had to be some stuff going on inside of his mind and his heart and his psyche. But I'm also sure that God gave him grace. And one of the evidences is that later when Peter writes, his second epistle, he speaks so highly, so um, encouragingly about the Apostle Paul and how he was in fact a vehicle of the Word of God. He was writing Scripture, he called it, even though he says some of it is difficult to understand. Paul had to admonish his friend, Peter had to receive it. And I will not turn you to the case of Apollos again in the interest of time, but you, you may want to remember that in Acts 18, Apollos was a wonderful preacher, a very gifted preacher, very able to open the Word of God, but he, he wasn't as well-rounded in, in his theology as he needed to be. And guess who helped him? A man and his wife. Aquila and Priscilla. Yes, Priscilla contributed to the correction with her husband. And it made Apollos a better preacher and a more effective servant of God. And so must we be. We must be humble when those times come. Number three, when else must we be most humble? Whenever we sit under the preaching and teaching or reading of God's Word. And the reason is because if the Word of God is blessed in its preaching, teaching, or reading by the Spirit of God, it is soul-searching. We are told by the Apostle to the Hebrews that it is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the Word of God does. It searches our souls and it discovers things for us that are not pleasant discoveries. And when the Spirit of God does that gracious work through His Word, how should we respond? With humility. 
when that word exposes our sin, especially our pride, the pride itself wants us to shut our eyes and close our ears and harden our hearts and it distracts our minds. But what we need to be instead is vulnerable. Do you ever, before you read the Word of God or before you hear it preach, here's a good thing to pray during that little time of preparation. And uh, we, we want, let me just explain to you, we've never really explained this, that we, we are, I guess you could say, allowing... <laughs> That, that sounds authoritative, and I don't mean that. A time of fellowship and warmth, and when we speak to one another and encourage each other. And then Brother Dave stands and leads us in that first hymn, which in a sense is the call to worship. And then we uh, listen to the piano, and um, we, we probably need that to be just a little bit longer. That's not just for Joe, that's for everybody. Because that, dear people, is especially the time that we want to seek God and say, now God, now it's not about me and my dear brothers and sisters. For now, I'm coming close now to bringing the offering. I need help. I want you to dispose my heart. I want you to help me to not be distracted. I want you to bless Pastor Ted. I want you to take your word and search my soul. I want you to discover things. I want you to thrill me with the gospel. Bless this service, God. And that's the time that we want to pray and quiet our hearts and prepare for coming in to the presence of God, I suggest to you that one of the best things you could pray during that time is, God, would you expose sin in my life and then show me the glory and the beauty of Christ in the gospel so that that revelation of sin that humbles me will send me to the fountain. I talked to a dear brother yesterday and I said this to this brother who's struggling with discouragement. I said, please understand this. that Every time God breaks your heart for sin and causes you to feel remorse, the goal is to send you to the fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Go to the fountain and then go away with joy. God's purpose for sorrow is not sorrow as an end, but joy. The sorrow is designed to bring you joy. Just keep going until you get that joy. And don't allow the sorrow. Humility, yes. Not the sorrow. The sin is forgiven. Go to Him. And so, that's how the Word of God is designed to humble us. And that's why. So that... <clears throat> we will then go to our Savior. And so pray for vulnerability. Just be vulnerable before the Word, whether it's being preached, taught, or read at home at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee or tea or whatever. Please pray, God, make me vulnerable. I need to be open. I need to be tender-hearted. Didn't God say through the prophet Isaiah, even though I'm the great God of the universe and I made all of these things and the earth is merely a footstool to me, yet... To this one I will look, to the one who is humble and who is contrite, and listen, listen, and who trembles at my word. That's the way we should approach the Scriptures. Profound humility, openness, vulnerability. Jesus prayed to His Father and said, I thank You, Lord of Heaven, that You have not revealed these things to the wise and prudent but to babes, to little children. Don't expect a revelation from God when you come to church or sit down before your Bibles if you're proud. No wonder Jesus said in Luke 8, 18, Be careful how you hear. Come under the Word. Come under its authority. And be humble. Number four, Whenever we find ourselves in discussion with those with whom we have philosophical, political, or theological differences. When do I most need to be humble? I need to be very humble when I'm in a discussion with someone that I know I have a philosophical, political, or theological difference with. And that happens frequently, doesn't it? Probably every week of our lives we find ourselves in discussion with such people. What's your first concern when you're in a discussion like that? Mine is winning. I want to win. I want to win the argument. I want... You know, to practice one-upsmanship. I want to see my opponent just stymie, like, well, I don't know what to say about that. That's overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, I'm brilliant. 
What should be your first concern when you're talking to a to a person that you have philosophical, political, or theological differences with? Your first concern should be to understand the other person's perspective. This is true when husbands and wives are talking, by the way. Could we just stop long enough and humble ourselves long enough to say, I really want to understand you. That's what I want. I want to understand you. Don't our wives say to us and our husbands sometimes, you don't understand me. And instead of being angry, we need to say, perhaps I wasn't listening carefully. Would you say it again? Would you help me? I do want to understand. And our second goal should be to consider. And don't just say, oh, I understand you now, but you're still wrong. It's stupid. (laughs) How about saying, I'd like to think about that. I want to think about that. I'm sure you've thought about it a long time. It'd be easy for me to say, well, that's dumb. But maybe it's not dumb. First, try to understand. Second, take some time to consider and pray. And maybe search the Scriptures. And then, and only then, thirdly, should our concern to be to help our friend, our opponent, our adversary this person with whom we disagree, to help them understand what we believe and why we believe it. That's the way to deal with a non-believer. Don't overpower them. Say, look, all I, first of all, I don't want to try to persuade you to agree with me. My first goal is just to help you understand what I believe, and then I'll, I want you to understand why I believe it. And then if you choose to reject it, that's, that's your prerogative, but... I'm not first trying to get you to accept this. I want you to understand what and why. Can we do that? Why is it that sometimes liberals seem to be better at this than conservatives, at least on television? I think maybe there's a conspiracy, and these programs purposely get jerks on to represent a biblical viewpoint, and they lose their temper, and they get loud, and they're obnoxious, and liberals are very kind. Isn't it impressive when you're talking to someone who's got tremendous intellectual prowess, and they're so calm, and, they're just, and they smile, and they say, well, I can understand perhaps why you'd say that, but I don't really think that's the right answer. And you admire that. And we get, our blood is boiling. And we're mad. And we're getting loud. And we're arguing. No, no. Don't be hyper. Don't interrupt. Don't get loud. And I'm guilty of these things. Believe me. You know how pride works in a pastor? It keeps him from doing that in front of you. That's how pride works in a pastor. But it doesn't keep you from doing it in front of your wife. Ask my poor wife. If I've ever gotten loud, gotten loud with her in 38 years, I think once. Multiple... <laughs> multiplied by about a thousand. That's undignified. That's treating her with disdain. Don't get loud with your children unless, as I say, there's a, a jet going over the house or a train going by or the Friday noon siren is going off. Don't get loud. We can be intense, but we don't. who wants to be shouted at? We need to be people of self-control. And part probably that self-control is rooted in humility, much of it, I believe, is. We need to work more on displaying grace than on winning the argument. Have you ever said that? You're in an argument, you're in a heated debate, maybe theological, maybe political, uh, who knows. Have you ever stopped and said, you know what, in my mind right now, i got a goal, I'm just setting a goal. This other person has no idea what you're thinking, you're saying, God, it would be so great if the main thing I achieved today was the exercise of self-control and Christian love and patience and virtue and winsomeness. I, God, I'm going to relinquish my desire to win this debate. That's really, that, that, that would be nice, but you know what? There's a bigger issue in my life. It's called humility. God, would you just help me? Help me, help me be winsome. Help me display grace. Help me to work more on strengthening this relationship. There's a relationship here. I don't want to win the argument and lose, lose the friendship. I don't want to win the battle and lose the war. I want to win the war. I want to strengthen this relationship. I want to work on keeping the chains, channels of communication open. I want to have that wisdom that is from above. I preached about that some months ago in James chapter 3. And among other things, it says this. It is reasonable. It's willing to reason and listen and think and consider and talk and 
discuss and try to understand. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy and to all of us through Timothy that the servant of the Lord must not strive or be argumentative, but must be able to teach in meekness, responding to those who debate with us. Realizing that God is the only one who can really change their thinking. But can we... Can we count on God? Can we expect God to change people's thinking when we don't obey the the manner and the demeanor and the attitude and the disposition and the posture that we're supposed to manifest? No. I think it would be very right for God, and perhaps He does this, to say, I'm not going to bless that argument. I'm not going to bless it because he and or she refuses to be what I've required him to be. And they're being like a hyper-Calvinist. They're expecting the sovereign God to come down, change the thinking of the person they're arguing with. But the sovereign God has already said to them, don't argue. Don't strive. Be able to teach. Be gentle. And when the Apostle Peter writes to us about defending our faith and says we need to be ready always to give an answer to the person who asks for the reason, why do you believe that? That sounds crazy to me. After we pledge our allegiance to Christ and we set Him aside as Lord, we present our argument. And the Apostle Peter says that we should do it in meekness and in respect. How critical this is. It's critical in the church, dear brethren. We may have some differences about this, that, or the other. And we talk about our differences, and we should be able to talk about our differences. Some of them may be theological. Some of them may be political. Some of them may just be matters of preference. But we should listen. We should be careful. We should be gentle. We should say, my main goal is to understand where you're coming from. I'm not even going to respond to you today. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you proved that winning wasn't that important and you said to your friend, I'm not even going to respond. It's not because I'm mad. It's because I want to sincerely consider what you are saying and I want to think about it biblically and pray about it. And then later I'd like to give you some sustained response. But not today. I don't do that because... Subconsciously, my goal is to persuade and to win. Is that humble? Is that really humble? So in the church, this grace is essential. And as I've hinted, it's essential in marriage, in the family. Parents need to listen to their children, not if they're arguing and not if they're being disrespectful. The discussion's over. But when kids come to you, Dad, and you're angry, and they ask respectfully, Dad, could we just talk about it? Could you explain? Could you help me? This is not a, I'm not going to do it unless you persuade me. This is, Dad, I just want to understand. No, I said do it, and that settles it. Are you really confident in who you are as a leader? Why don't you sit down and say, Son, I'd love to explain it to you. Um, and I hope it will be helpful. Talk. Reason. And then sometimes you have to be firm and say, well, still, this is what we're going to do. Okay, enough. Number five, whenever we are going through a dark providence or a time of deep disappointment, that's when we need to be especially humble. It could be the experience of a terrible calamity. Or it could be simply a trying disappointment. You were hoping and praying and waiting for that promotion. And they they passed you by. And... Honestly, they did hire somebody who was less qualified than you. That's really hurtful, isn't it? Especially if you've been praying about it. Guess who you get mad at, but don't dare to admit you're mad at? God. I mean, if 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 we verbalized what we felt in our hearts, we might just come out and say, God, I'm mad at you. I don't really trust your wisdom. I don't really trust your heart, God. I don't really think you're omniscient. I think you're capable of making the wrong decision. Who would say that? All of us in our hearts. 
And we must rather, when we're going through, whether it be a terrible calamity or a trying disappointment, we must rather trust God and not be asking questions like, how could God allow this? But rather, I wonder what God is up to and how He's going to bring glory to Himself through this. Again, I don't have time to take you to Job, but I've been in Job 1 again, and you know that those terrible calamities came on t- into his life, one after another, after another, after another. Four of them in chapter 1, terrible things, and the worst of all was that he lost his seven children to a probably a tornado or a cyclone, was what they would call it there perhaps. Terrible things to happen, happen to him, and you know what Job did. Now tell me if this is or is not a manifestation of humility. Listen, these are the words that we read. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, and we sang it this morning. I hope you know that blessed be your name is based on Job. Job lived in the land that was plentiful. He was a very blessed man. But Matt Redman leads us to sing, Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. I don't know how you get more scriptural than that. And Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. This, this is God. This is a God thing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the writer says, In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And later his wife told him after he lost his health, You just need to curse God. This is God's fault. What kind of a God do you worship, Job? He's not my God. He may be your God. And Job says, O foolish woman, shall we receive, a, receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? No, I will not curse God. I trust in God. And I'm saying to you, dear people, that even we who are forgiven of our sins in our weakness are capable quite easily of getting angry with God and charging God foolishly, at least in our hearts. And what we really need to say when those disappointments come or those calamities, well, I said, as I was taught by James, if the Lord wills, He didn't. The will of the Lord be done. It is good. What we have to hold on to, according to Jerry Bridges in his wonderful book called Trusting God Even When Life Life Hurts, are these three things. God is sovereign. God is wise. God is loving. You just say that to yourself over and over and over because it's the truth. It's not a mantra. It's the truth. God is sovereign. God is wise. God is loving. He's worthy of my trust. And then, sixthly, we really need humility whenever we are going through a bright providence. Not just a dark providence, but a bright providence. A time of blessing, success, prosperity, praise, or even wonderful answers to prayer. Last week we looked at a man who went through a bright providence. God saved him from the Assyrian army, killed 185,000. God healed him in answer to his prayer and gave him 15 more years. God showed him a supernatural sign in answer to his prayers. How did he respond? Not what in the way he should. And I'm submitting to you, dear people, that whenever you're going through a time of blessing and success and prosperity or perhaps even praise, someone comes to you and praises you, that's a call to humility. Whenever you have an answer to prayer, that's a call to humility. Who could ever dream that a true child of God could find in the kind providence of God a reason not to be humble, but rather proud. Who could dream it? But it's true. It's true in our own lives. It may be unthinkable, it may be ludicrous, it may be insanity, it may be wicked, but such is the deceitfulness of our own hearts with regard to remaining sin that even we respond to blessings sometimes, not in humility, but in pride. 
we become preoccupied with the gift rather than the giver. We start believing that we ourselves are the reason for the success. And we join Nebuchadnezzar and say, look at the majesty. Look at this great kingdom which I myself have established. Maybe we wouldn't verbalize it, just like we wouldn't verbalize our anger with God, but in our hearts, that's how we feel, and that's sort of how we're thinking, and we're saying to ourselves, you know, you really are something. You really are something. It's amazing. God isn't blessing other people like He's blessing you, is He? You really are something. But the truth is, whenever we are blessed, it should be seen as a fresh call to humility. This is what Paul said in Romans 2, 4. He says, don't you know that the goodness of God is designed to lead you to repentance? To profound humility and sorrow for your sinfulness? And I said it last week. We should many times be saying, God, how can I sin against a God who is so good to me? You just showed your goodness again. I want to bow down. I hate my sin. I love you, God. Thank you. I don't deserve this. That's humility. I do ask you to turn to this passage, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And it is, um, I'm going to say it's the last passage I'm going to turn you to, even though I could turn you to one other. Would you just notice this? I think this is worth memorizing. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Many of you know where I'm headed. This has become precious to you already. This is a part of your theology, but it needs to be a part of our lives. It's not a, it's not a proof text for the Calvinist. This is an exhortation on the part of the Apostle uh, to help us be more humble. That's what it's about. It's designed for sermons on humility. Verse, verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? People do. People say, you know, she is really, really good at that. There are differences in us. This isn't something that flattens us all out so we all are equally gifted. That's not true. We're all gifted. We're not equally gifted. No one's equally gifted. So who sees? Well, the answer perhaps could be a lot of people. Okay. Now, question number two. What do you have that you did not receive? The honest answer is nothing. And anything that we have cultivated, we have cultivated because it was a gift to begin with. And even the cultivation was a blessing of God. One more question, says Paul. If then you received it, thank you for being honest about that. Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You really think you're something, don't you? You're nothing. You are nothing. You got that from God. And that's why C.J. Mahaney in his wonderful little booklet on, or book on humility says we need to be constantly transferring the glory. The glory comes to us. You did such a great job. Thank you for that. I, you're so gifted. And we need to say, well, thanks for the encouragement, but you know where that came from. That's to God's glory. God deserves all the praise. And we, we need to consciously transfer the glory. To God consciously. And lastly, when do we especially need to be humble? Well, whenever we have an opportunity to serve anyone. Whenever we have an opportunity to serve anyone. Why do we need humility then? Really? You find serving people goes well with your pride? Doesn't go well with my pride. I want to be served. You know, serving means you've got to kind of get down. And I added to my statement, especially whenever we have the opportunity to serve anyone, especially those who are less privileged, less attractive, less educated, less prosperous, less like us, unable to pay us back, less like us. Who could be less like us in the most critical ways than the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you say he became a man like us. That's true. But in his moral perfections, in his soul, in his mind, 
in his heart, in his motives, in his words, in his behavior, who could be less like us than Jesus? Rich prayed that this morning. He confessed in his prayer, Pastor Rich, that your heart is pure. Our Savior is holy and pure and He was absolutely obedient to God the Father. He was perfectly loving. He was sacrificial. On and on and on and on goes the list. And yes, He was humble. So do you think, you think He might like it if we, sort of like Him, desire to serve people who are less like us in all those ways, less privileged, Less attractive? When's the last time you sought out somebody that was just, I'm not going to say repulsive, but just like, I'm not attracted to this person at all. It's just something I just don't really enjoy being around people like that. But I know it will be Christ-like for me. Look what look at the stoop that Christ went down for me. I'm going. I'm going to that person. I'm going to serve that person. I'm going to help that person. I don't care what his economic situation is. I don't care how little education he or she has. I don't care how he or she dresses in terms of it being weird and strange. I don't care how many body piercings they have. I don't care how many colors they have in their hair. I don't care what their ethnicity is. This is a human being made in the image of God. Have you ever yet met a human being who was not made in the image of God? But we like the people who are made in the image of God if they are also sort of like us. Have you ever met a human being who was not made in the image of God? That's reason enough to minister to them and to serve them. We should be looking for people that are harder to serve, just for the good of our own souls and for our conformity to the moral image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, obviously, not only those kinds of people. We need to serve one another in this church, in the nursery, in the hospitality, in the keeping up of the properties, and in a hundred other ways. I'm not just talking about serving people who are different, but just serving, period. Last week, I did not take us to the case of Jesus in John 13, but I could have used that. I said he's the ultimate example of humility. But remember what he did the night before he was crucified. He washed the dirty, stinking, sweaty, smelly feet of his disciples. And when he was done, he said, Now what you have seen me do for you, I, your Lord and Master, did this to you. This is how I want you to live with regard to serving one another. And the fundamental grace that you're going to need to do that is humility. And so, these are the times. When do we need to be most humble? Let me just put it this way. I'm not going to repeat the seven. I'm going to give you a different answer, an unexpected answer. So when do we need to be most humble? Here's my answer. Right now. Right now, yeah. Yeah, because when, when it happens this afternoon and you get in the car, you don't have any time to get your heart and soul where it needs to be. Right now. Always. Before the challenge comes, if we become humble, if we are humble... If we are growing in humility, we'll be humble when that thing comes. Those seven things that I've mentioned. And to the extent that we have not been humble in those situations, but rather proud, prideful, we need forgiveness. And we need to go to our Savior. And I recommend Him to you now. The Lord Jesus Christ. He said, learn from me. For I am meek and lowly of heart. I want you to be like me. And we need to go to our Savior. And we can pray a prayer that will be virtually impossible for Him not to answer. And I, I think I dare to say it will be impossible for Him not to answer. On biblical grounds. And the prayer should go something like this. Lord Jesus, 
Would you please make me more like yourself with regard to humility? Now, I want to be more like Jesus with regard to everything. But today we're thinking about humility. Do you, can you imagine Jesus saying, mm, don't think so, don't really care about that. No, you, you want to be like me, but I'd like you to be like me in a lot of ways, but I'm not sure about that part. Of course not, that's ludicrous. If we go to our Savior, first of all, with all of our pride, and say, God, for the sake of Jesus, forgive me for all my pride. It should send me right into hell. Because you resist the proud, you give grace to the humble. I need more humility. I thank you that you've made me initially humble in my conversion. I thank you that humility is a fruit of the Spirit, meekness. But I want to grow in this grace. And so, Lord Jesus, I come to you and I pray that you will help me through the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, to become more and more and more humble. And if you pray that, you will surely be answered graciously by your Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the Word of God. We know that we've only scratched the surface of what humility is and where it comes from and how important it is and who provide us good examples and when we need it. But we thank you that your Word gives us understanding in all of these areas. And today, we pray that you will help us to be conscious of the situation that we're in or that we're going into and help us to quickly say to ourselves, this is a time for humility, and to quickly cry to you for grace. So help us, Lord. Again, make the members of Heritage Baptist Church so humble that people will be attracted to our gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll sing one verse.